welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the only way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is the word of the Lord. Father, we come before you in the words uh, that Jesus gave us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, that's our prayer this morning. We pray to you as our Father in heaven, as your kids. We pray that your name would be lifted up high, that it would be hallowed. Lord, we pray that you'd get glory in this place. We pray you get glory in this world. Lord, that your name would be treasured and loved and held in high esteem. We pray, Lord, also that Your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We look forward to your kingdom fully come here, um, that your kingdom would come and fill the world and make all things new. And we pray for that with great anticipation because we know you will answer that request. And Father, we pray that you give us our daily bread, both physically but also spiritually, Lord, as we gather here, that you would feed us in your word, that you would feed us at your table that you would feed us through the other people that are here and the gifts that you've given them. And Father, we pray that you'd forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lord, we, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to have hearts that, that forgive others, that, that flee bitterness, that are willing to, to let things go and to, and to totally forgive, to no longer harbor resentments because of the way you've forgiven us. 
that you remember our sins no more. Help us to give that to other people. And Father, we pray, lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, as we're here in this place, and Lord, embattled by the world, the flesh, and the devil, and certainly in this place, undergoing all kinds of spiritual warfare, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to not be ignorant of the devices of the enemy, and that we cling to you, that we would, um, that we would turn to you, that the, the devil would flee from us as we resist him and turn to you. Lord, come, we pray. Speak, glorify yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this book, as you guys remember, is about how Jesus is better. Jesus is better, as we've seen. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than the Old Testament priests. He's better because he gives us a better Sabbath rest than Joshua gave. He's better because he gives us a better covenant with better promises. We saw that last week. Then this week, we're going to see that Jesus is better because he's a priest that went into the better tabernacle and offered the better and final sacrifice. And uh, there's a lot of talk here in this passage about the tabernacle, also called the temple later. It was initially a portable thing. It was the tabernacle, later the temple. He speaks of it as a tabernacle. And uh, you guys remember where the tabernacle came from, right? So um, after the people got uh, rescued from Egypt, they went to Mount Sinai, they got the law. And one of the things that was in the law, as you read through Exodus and the other passages that they got, is uh, very detailed directions on how to build this thing, this tabernacle, this mobile temple. And they took it with them for that 40 years. And then when they settled in the land, of course, King Solomon built a stone temple instead of the tabernacle. Now, what the author wants to do here, before he talks about Jesus is better, he wants to lead us through a little tour of the tabernacle. I find this so interesting. Take a look at verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, talking about the tabernacle. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table with the bread of presence. It's called the holy place. Behind that second curtain, there was a second section called the most holy place, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So he gives us a little tour. Um, the tabernacle and later the temple, they had the basic same outline. There's two rooms, right? So you have the, the holy place. It's a place where the priests could go in. They went in every day. They did things like kept the lamps burning, kept the incense going, replacing the bread of presence. They put bread in there each week, uh, 12 of them, one for each of the tribes. They would offer the daily sacrifice in that area. And then there was the most holy place, or some people call the Holy of Holies, it's called in other places, where God himself appeared, and he would appear over these golden uh, cherubim, which were on top of the ark, these golden sculptures of cherubim. He would appear above it. And that spot above the cherubim, above those gold angels on the top of the ark, was God's throne on earth. It was the place he would appear. It was the place he appeared to Moses when Moses would go in and speak to God. And um, between these two sections, the, the holy place, which all the priests could go in, and the most holy place was this really thick curtain. And, and the high priest was the only one that could go in the most holy place, and he could only go in once a year. And, and it's really interesting what's in this tabernacle because it contained, it contained reminders of God's goodness and faithfulness. Um, it's interesting because it talks about stuff that's in the ark. You know, that, that he, they put certain things in the ark, and, and you get the sense that the ark is like the inside of it. It's kind of like a, like a memory chest or something, like a little box you might have with pictures and souvenirs of your relationship. 
you know? There were these things that were put in there to remember God's faithfulness, to remember their, their relationship with God. There was a, a sample of the manna. They got this bread that would appear to them every uh, day throughout the 40 years. They would collect it, and they took a little bit of it, and they put it in a jar and put it in the ark to save it, a little sample. So interesting. A sample to remind them of how faithful God was to them, that this really happened. Like for 40 years, God provided bread in the desert to them. And they're like, let's save a little sample of that. You know, God told them to put it in a little jar, right? And a little memento. And then there was Aaron's rod that budded. I remember the first time I, I read this passage, I was in, uh, I think I was in undergrad real early in, in college. And I read this section and it was so exotic. You know, it's a sample of manna, Aaron's rod that budded. And I'm like, this is so interesting, the kind of things that are here. So what's going on with that is that Aaron was the first of the priesthood. God showed that he was indeed the one to be the line of the priest by having his staff like grow leaves and almonds on it. So uh, there was a dispute about like who should be the priest and they put all their staffs out and they came back and Aaron's rod had budded and it had all this stuff on it. They're like, okay, so we'll save that in the chest, you know, we'll put that in there. You see what they're doing is they're putting things that, that remind them of God's faithfulness and care. And then inside was the actual Ten Commandments. The Tablets of the Covenant. And it's, it was the second edition, right? Because the first ones got broken, right? They were broken like immediately. People broke the law even before they received it. There's a lesson there. And inside, though, it was the second edition, Tablets of Stone. These are the Ten Commandments written by God on stone. They put those in there to remind them of God's gift of his word. Like these people were entrusted with the very words of God. So they put that in the ark. And so the, the tabernacle reminded them of God's faithfulness, of his care for them, of his goodness. It also, though, reminded them of their own sinfulness. And we can see that in the, in the cherubim that are on the ark. Why would the cherubim remind them of their sinfulness? Where is the first time the cherub appears in Scripture? In the garden, right? When, when Adam and Eve first sin against God, and they're kicked out of the garden, they're kicked out of the presence of God, kind of the tabernacle of God, and they're sent out east, it's the cherubim with a flaming sword that keeps them from coming back in. And so them even thinking of a cherubim would remind them of that. It was another reminder of their sin and how it kept them from God with this like thick curtain, right? So you have the, the holy place where the priest can go, and you have the most holy place where only the high priest can go, and only once a year. You have this really thick curtain, and, and God had them embroider a cherub on that too. Not to put too fine a point on it. But it's to remind them of the barrier between them and God. Just like they were excluded from the Garden of Eden. They're being kept out of this most holy place by this thick barrier and the angel to remind them on it. And then there was a reminder of their sin every year with the one day that the, the most holy place was open, Yom Kippur or uh, the Day of Atonement. Look at verse 6. These preparations having been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, it's the holy place, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, most holy place, only the high priest goes, and but once a year, and not without taking blood, he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicated that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section stands, which is symbolic of the present age. So this tabernacle it taught them a few things about their sin, about God, and about how to relate to him. First, it taught them what was needed. What's going to be needed to get in there? What's going to be needed to get in the very presence of God? What's going to be needed to get into heaven to be made right with God? And the tabernacle taught them, really simply, substitution. 
that somebody is going to have to take that sin for them. And they saw it in the sacrifices each year, that there was going to need to be a substitute that would take their place and pay for their sin. The temple did a great job of that. Remember that the believers, like we talked about last week under the Mosaic Covenant, they were saved the same way we are, right? They were saved by grace, through faith, looking forward to Christ and his, his substitutionary death. We're saved by looking back, right? They were saved and forgiven as if on a credit card that Christ would come and pay one day. And, um, and so they're saved the same way we are. And the temple and the sacrifices gave them understanding to look forward to someday God's going to, to make a remedy. We're, we're saved, we're right with God, we're forgiven based on a redeemer to come as if on a credit card, he will pay that balance. And so the temple and the sacrifices gave them a way to look forward to Christ. So the temple had that function, show them how the gospel works. The temple had another function too, which was to say that it hadn't been done yet right? The fact that there was still this heavy veil, the fact that the high priest was the only one that could go in once a year was a sign that the final sacrifice has not been made yet. And he makes that point in verse 8. We'll see it in just a second. But just think about, like, what does it say to the average Israelite that not even their priests can go in there? And what does it say to the average Israelite that, that not even the high priest can go in there anytime he wants, Right? And, and, and not even Aaron could go in anytime he wanted. There's this great line in Leviticus 16, 2. You know, there's lots of great lines in Leviticus. I don't know if you've been there, but Leviticus 16, 2. I love where the Lord says this to Moses. He says this. Hey, tell Aaron your brother. It doesn't say hey originally. Hey, tell Aaron your brother not to come in at any time into the holy place so that I may not kill him. Wow. It's like, I like him. Tell him not to just stop by. Right? And then there's all these instructions about the Day of Atonement and how he can drop in on one day. What does that say to the average Israelite? You know, not even Aaron can come in any time. There's a barrier. I, I dare not approach God's very presence because something needs to be done. Some substitute needs to occur. And then when he does come, when Aaron does come and the high priest does come in, he has to come with this sacrifice. And, and here's what all this says. Here's what this thick veil says. Here's what this ominous not ability to enter it says. Look at verse 8. By this, it actually tells us what it all means. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section, which is talking about the, the holy place and the veil, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. As long as that tabernacle stood, as long as that temple stood, it said that free and full access to God is still closed. That's what verse 8 says. And the believers in the Mosaic Covenant, those believers, they got the message. Take a look at verse 9. It says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipers. So these Old Testament believers that were saved by grace through faith, uh, Messiah to come, also had this sense of like, it hasn't been done yet. And they knew it, and it nagged them. It nagged them in their conscience. It says that it could never perfect the conscience of the worshipers. There would be these sacrifices every year, there would be sacrifices every day, and somehow they just knew in their conscience, this isn't quite doing it, right? What's a conscience? Your conscience is like a smoke detector, your conscience is like a smoke detector, except for detecting smoke, it detects sin. And its job is to go off whenever we have unconfessed sin. Okay? It's for it to go off. It should be kind of blaring. And our conscience is not entirely accurate. It can sometimes be overactive, where we feel guilty about things that aren't sin. 
It can be callous to where we're, it's not really going off when it should. Our consciences need to be regularly recalibrated to the Word of God. You know, you have this sense of guilt. You go like, well, did I break an actual command? No, I just feel bad that I let somebody down. They wanted something from me and they didn't get it. It's like, okay, well, then my conscience shouldn't be going off right now. It also recalibrates us when it shows us our sin in the Word and it reminds us that we should actually have that going off at that time. So it's like a smoke detector and it goes off for sin. It should really only go off when we're in sin, when we haven't confessed our sin. And it should always go off during those times. Um, these sacrifices under the Mosaic Covenant, they can never quite silence the consciences of these believers. There was always that ringing of the alarm of their conscience, even ever so softly. And there's good reason for this, guys. Did you guys notice in verse 7, was there a word that jumped out at you when it was read in verse 7? Did you notice what kind of sins are covered by the Mosaic sacrifices? Take a look at verse 7. It says, blood, which he offered for himself, the high priest, and for the what? Unintentional sins of the people. Does that concern you? Does that concern you? Imagine you're a Mosaic Covenant believer, and you decide to actually read the terms of service, and you're, and you're going through the Old Testament law, and you're looking like, what do these sacrifices cover? And you see that they cover unintentional sins. Are you concerned? Because those aren't the sins that bother me the most. I mean, they're sins, and that's a, my concern is more the sins I did intentionally. How about you? And so there's this sense of like, well, what about those? You know, and you hear in the Psalms things like, oh, Lord, if you should count iniquity, who could stand? But there's forgiveness with you, that there's a sense that God will take care of it, but the sacrifices are not going to be what does it. So they were concerned. They were concerned about those those sins and the sacrifices and the ceremonial washings. They were just physical symbols of the forgiveness they knew they needed. Look at verse nine. According to this arrangement, the gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. So you have these sacrifices and you have these washings, but there's this sense of like, yeah, okay, I'm doing these washings and doing these sacrifices, but what's going to wash my conscience? You know, what's going to remove the stain that's in there? Because certainly these things happening in the temple aren't doing it. How will I have the stain on my conscience removed? It reminds me of Lady Macbeth, you know, she's guilty of her crimes, and so she's sleepwalking in her chambers. She's rubbing her hands together, it says, for a quarter of an hour, lamenting what? Will these hands never be clean? And here she's sleepwalking, just trying to wash her hands. What? Will these hands never be clean? She can still smell the blood, and she says, all the perfume of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. There's a sense of, like, in the back of your mind that I'm not okay, that I've got this sin something's got to remove it. And the Mosaic Covenant did not cleanse the conscience of the worshipers. And you know what, guys? Relying on the law never will. Relying on the law will never cleanse your conscience. Because he says later in Hebrews 10 that the law just gives a continual reminder of sin. The law's not for that. You know, some people say, okay, yeah, I feel this really bad sense of guilt in my conscience, and I'm just going to do some good deeds to try to, like, cover it up, you know? I'll just pile some good deeds on it. But what happens? That thing's still ringing, right? That conscience is still ringing because good deeds keeping the law will never remove the stain of conscience. It's not meant to do that. 
And these sacrifices in the temple, they were just external pictures of how they needed an internal work of forgiveness. And, um, and what's really neat in this passage, and one of the things I want to spend some time on is the reason why it was really good at showing this, but couldn't actually do the job of cleansing the conscience is, is that the temple was really just a copy it was really just a copy of the tabernacle in heaven. This, this tabernacle, the temple, was really just a picture of something in heaven. Look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. This is the wild thing about Hebrews, is it tells us that the tabernacle was actually a kind of copy of the true tabernacle, God's home in heaven. Isn't that amazing? Any of you kids or any of you adults ever make a diorama for school? Do people still do this with a shoebox or something? Right? Or, or fourth grade, California Mission. You guys made California Missions? Everybody made a California Mission. Like, it's an important part of our education that you know how to do that. Is, uh, you know, because you never know, you know? Or, you know, you think about Legos. You guys made little sets of Legos with little people in them and stuff like that. That's what the temple was. It was a copy of something in heaven. It was a diorama. It was a, a model in miniature of God's true tabernacle, God's true dwelling place, his home in heaven. Isn't that wild? In fact, there was something we skipped over in chapter 8, but in chapter 8, verse 5, it says that Moses was instructed by God when he was given the instructions for the tabernacle, see that you make everything according to the pattern I've shown you on the mountain. He's like, make it just right because this is a model in miniature. Isn't that wild? That's what that tabernacle was for. It was to be that. And this solves a tension, guys, in Scripture because the Bible says a couple things. It says that the temple is, God, is God's dwelling place all throughout Scripture. But then there's other passages that say, like, God doesn't dwell in temples made by human hands. And you're like, how does this work? Well, the way it works is that the temple on earth was, was just a diorama, was just a model in miniature of his true dwelling place in heaven, of his true tabernacle. It was a copy, it says, verse 11, of the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. It was a copy, a copy of God's throne room, of his house. It'd be worth saying a few words about heaven here. Heaven is God's dwelling place, his home. We acknowledge that even in the prayer that I did this morning. Our Father who is in heaven, that God uniquely dwells in heaven. And you might say, okay, well, that doesn't totally make sense because don't we believe God dwells everywhere? He's omnipresent, and that's true. But God is very uniquely present in heaven to bless. So he reveals his presence in a special way in heaven to bless. God is everywhere, but he's not experienced the same way everywhere, and we know that. We don't experience God the same way everywhere. God is most present to bless in heaven. That's what heaven is. It's the place where God is most fully present to bless. Heaven is about God, okay? God's presence is what makes heaven heaven. And that might sound obvious. You might be like, of course, but it's not obvious. If you look at other religions like Islam, Buddhism, Mormonism, heaven is not about being with God. The biblical vision of heaven is actually radically God-centered. That the reason why heaven is heaven is not, you know, because there's not sadness and suffering and sin and all these things. It's all those things. But the, the reason it's heaven is because God is there, right? Heaven is the place where we're going to see God's glory most fully. And the Psalms say that the heavens declare the glory of God, that as we look at the sky and as we look at creation, we see the glory of God. I don't know if you guys had this experience. I'll check. 
But there was a lot of declaring the glory of God in the sky on Friday night. Did you guys see this? Okay, so I was like, I, did, I drove up to Nuevo to go do an emergency for work. And then as I'm driving back, I like look to the east and there's this crazy like wall of cloud. It was gigantic. And there's all these like little like spiraling pillars coming up from it. I'm like, that is a massive cloud. And I always wonder like, how tall is that? You know, I wish I could like know like how tall that is. But I'm like, that is ridiculously tall. And then a couple hours later, it turned like pink and purple and blue. And I was like, whoa, this is crazy. In fact, I went home and it was the first thing I said, I was like, guys, come outside. You got to see this. You know, like, look at this thing. It's crazy. You take a picture and it's all little and it's, you know, but you're looking at it. It's like it could engulf you. It's incredible. And then the lights went out. And then what happened? Lightning, like crazy. Did you guys see this? It was incredible. So then it's like, it looks like Mount Sinai. It wasn't there. But it was incredible, right? The heavens were declaring the glory of God. And what's really cool is, like, in Job, Job says that when we see stuff like that, we're like, this is so beautiful, this is so amazing. Job says these are merely the outskirts of his ways. These are merely, like, the fringes of his garment. He says these are like a whisper of his glory. Isn't that amazing? Guys, if you enjoy seeing things that are glorious and beautiful and powerful in nature, you're going to love heaven because that's where all the glory comes from. All the glory comes from him. Heaven is the place where we're going to most fully enjoy God's happiness. You guys realize, I mean, even if you're not a believer this morning, one thing you got to realize is that God is where all happiness comes from. Any happiness you've ever had has come down from God. James says it this way, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Isn't that amazing? Like every bit of happiness you've ever had, every gift you've ever had, even if you don't know him, every, every beautiful thing you've had, every, every bit of good food and drink and friendship and laughter and satisfying work and satisfying rest has all come from him. God is where all the happiness comes from. God is the happiest of all beings. Do you guys realize that? He's the happiest of all beings. There's no one happier than God. He's the happiest of all beings. He he is where all the happiness comes from that we experience in this life. Psalm 1611 says this, You make known to me the path of life. And then David says to God, In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I just want to ask you this morning, is that the way you think of God? Is the first thing you think of when you think of God to think he is the happiest of all beings? In his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Like that's what he wants to share with us. He wants to share with us his happiness, his joy. And seeing him, guys, when we see him in heaven is going to be just the most massive explosion of happiness you've ever had. Now, there's a theological term for this. It's called the beatific vision. Beatific vision means literally the vision that makes one happy, the vision that makes one blessed. Just seeing him is going to make everything more than okay just beyond happiness, beyond joy, just seeing him. Guys, our whole ability to even experience happiness was made for him. Like your happiness receptors that are all over your soul are meant to bind to God. Now, you've tried to bind them to other things, and you know, you can kind of get a little bit of a, a dopamine hit out of that, but it's destructive. Like your receptors of happiness are meant to bind to God. And you're going to find that out when you see him. You're going to be like, oh, wow, okay. This is, this is where I should have been looking for happiness all along. This is where it's at, right? So in heaven, you're going to, 
you're going to see him, you're going to enjoy him. And what's amazing about heaven too and the happiness there is your happiness is going to be ever increasing. Have any of you guys worried about heaven going on forever and you might get bored? Anyone worry about that? Okay, some of you may have worried about that, but you're afraid to say, and that's fine. It's a common concern. And, uh, and the answer is, is that not only will you not be bored, your joy is going to be ever increasing in heaven. And here's the reason. God is a source of all joy. He's infinite. We're finite. We can never take in all that he is and, and experience all that he is in one moment. And you guys all know that when you learn new things about him, you get that little tick of joy. And you're like, ooh, that felt good. Like, I just saw something new of God, and it's amazing, right? Well, imagine that going on forever, because it's going to be like God is this just immense, glorious being that we can't take in all of them. We're like, we're like a little like shot glass trying to take in the Pacific Ocean. And so we just take in little bits of him, little bits of him, little bits of him, and our joy, every time we see some new aspect of who he is and some new thing about him, we're like, it makes us happy, that kind of tick of happiness going on forever. Isn't that amazing? They'll never be like, saw him. What else is there to do around here? <laughs> right? We're going to do all kinds of things. I don't want to give the sense that it's just that because, I mean, when you look at uh, Revelation 21, 22, it's a new heavens, new earth, and there's all kinds of things we're doing. We're building and planting and we're doing art and we're doing all kinds of things and exploring, but the joy is coming from being in his presence. Right? And that's inexhaustible. He's inexhaustibly wonderful ever-increasing happiness. You're like, not interested. I don't know why. That's strange, okay? You got to question yourself on that. You got to question yourself if there's any joy in this world that you're like, I'd rather have this than ever-increasing happiness in God forever. You got to be like, I think I'm making a bad choice here, right? Remember C.S. Lewis talking about that? He says we're like a kid that wants to just continue making mud pies in a slum because we don't know what the offer of a vacation by the sea is, and that we're far too easily pleased, right? And so that's where all the happiness is. Heaven is a place where you're going to feel most loved by God. In this world, guys, we experience God's love, but we experience God's love as if obscured by clouds, right? Just like the clouds obscure the sun, like things like distraction, things like our own doubts, Things like our own difficulties in life can kind of obscure our experience of God's love. God's, you know, just like the sun's always shining with the same intensity. God's loving us as his children with just full strength love, but we're not quite feeling it and experiencing it because doubts and, and difficulties and distractions are, are in the way and, and, and blocking our experience of it. So often we feel only the faintest sense of his love. But Edwards, he preached this, uh, Jonathan Edwards, he preached a sermon called Heaven is a World of Love. And heaven is a world of love, where suddenly the clouds of our doubts and distractions and difficulties are taken away, and we experience God's love in full strength. The kind of love he always had for us in Christ, but we're actually experiencing it. Heaven's a place of love. Guys, if you enjoy being loved, I don't know, do you guys like being loved? Um, do you guys love loving other people? I'll say you will love heaven. You're going to love it. It's incredible. Heaven's a world of love. And heaven is also, so heaven is a place is the place where God is, and heaven is a place, and I think this is really important too. Heaven's a real place. It's not a state of existence, whatever that would even be. It's his tabernacle, this passage says. It's his house. It's a real place. We know heaven's a real place. It's a real place like Texas or San Diego, but it's a lot more like San Diego, and, uh, but a lot better than San Diego even. And uh, 
I think we have some people that can vouch for that in this room. We got amens already. Okay. Okay. It's a real place. And we know it's a real place because Jesus' body went there and is still there. So this has to be an actual place. And Jesus said he was going there to prepare a place for us. So it must be a place. And it's a place. This is interesting. Heaven is a place that's not far away. Okay. And why do I say that? You guys remember when Stephen was being martyred? It says that he saw heaven open and he saw Jesus standing there. Now, how close would Jesus have to be? Heaven's not far away. It's just not normally seen. Isn't that interesting? So it's a place. It's a place where God dwells. It's a place of infinite happiness and glory. Guys, if you, you know, some of you love to travel. You love to explore exotic locations. This is the ultimate travel destination. Heaven is the ultimate travel destination. Paul and John, they went there. They came back. Um, John talked about it. Paul didn't. I assure you that when you go there, you will want to stay. It's one of those places you go on a trip to and you go like, I don't need to go back, right? And this tabernacle, heaven, God's home, is the place where believers will go immediately upon death. Immediately upon death, you'll be in that place. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Like you close your eyes in death, you open them, and you're not where you were before. You're immediately in the presence of God seeing Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Close them, no delay. Close them, open them. You know, if I was to, you know, drive into my truck and go off a cliff or something like that, it would just be like down, and then there would be a, and I'd be there. Before I even felt another thing, it'd be like I'd be in the presence of God. Isn't that amazing? Be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. And that tabernacle, that tent, that place where God dwells, heaven, is where Jesus presented the perfect sacrifice. That's what verse 11 is talking about. Once he made that final payment for our sin, he rose from the dead. Forty days later, he went up to heaven and he presented his sacrifice in heaven for us. He presented the sacrifice he had made to God the Father in the true tabernacle, the place where God dwells, so that we have full access. And he's saying here that the Old Testament priests, the high priests, they would just went into the earthly tabernacle. They just went into the, like a diorama of heaven. They just kind of acted out something Jesus was really going to do. They acted it out, but Jesus really went to the real place. And there's a great but in the verse, beginning of verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Isn't that amazing? On the cross, Jesus took that flaming sword of the cherub. He took that flaming sword of God's judgment so that we could pass through that thick curtain into the true Eden, into the true tabernacle of God. As Hebrews says, by a new and living way, Jesus opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. Isn't that amazing? Thinking of that, the parting of that thick curtain into the Holy of Holies, author of Hebrews says that we have entered but through Jesus' pierced flesh. So what's the author of Hebrews saying you know, to these Jewish Christians? Remember that this is written to some Jewish Christians who were tempted to return 
to Judaism, to leave Christ and return to Judaism. And what this passage says to them is, if you leave Jesus, that's what you're leaving. And what you're going back to is like a little Lego priest in a little Lego temple doing little symbolic things. And what you're losing is you're losing the true high priest who went into the true tabernacle in heaven and gives you full access. And because you're leaving him, you're going to hear the ringing of your conscience, the unforgiveness ringing in your ears. Like some of you, I have tinnitus or tinnitus. You can say it either way. The United Tinnitus Foundation says you can say it either way. Some of you guys have that. Some of you guys have ringing in your ear. You guys don't even know what it is. Okay, hold that up again. You got it, you got it. Okay, so like any non-dudes have, oh, ladies got it, okay, ladies got it. There's a lot of this, right? There was this guy I was talking to years ago, and he was just like, I'm being driven crazy. I've got this ringing in my ears, and you know, I don't know how to get rid of it. And I was like, oh, I've got that too. And then he was like, fine. <laughs> I was like, oh, I have that too. A lot of people have it. And then it's like, oh, okay. But what it is, for those of you guys, <laughs> he just needed to hear that. He thought he was like suffering in some special way. Um, it's ringing in your ears, and I don't notice it all the time. I'm pretty sure it's there all the time, but of course, you don't notice it when you're not noticing it. Um, but I think it's there all the time. But I do notice it at night. You'll hear it, like when it's quiet and there's no distraction. And sometimes it'll be like, and sometimes all of a sudden it'll go, and that's fun, you know, when it really turns itself up. But it's a constant ringing in the ears, right? And, um, and it doesn't go away, and it's always there. That's what an unclean conscience is like, right? An unclean conscience is, you might not hear it all the time, but that ringing, that kind of smoke alarm, that conscience is there. It's there when it's quiet. And without Christ, guys, there's no way to make that ringing stop. And that ringing will get louder and louder into eternity. And only Christ can take it away. And so this morning, if you have that, if you have that ringing in your conscience that you have sin that has not been taken care of because you have not trusted in Christ, it's telling you something, right? It's telling you you need Jesus. And the amazing thing is that Jesus can remove the stain of your sin. The thing that you try to remove by doing religious deeds, maybe by coming here, by doing certain you know, good deeds to try and, or distract yourself or whatever, that thing can be totally removed and will be totally removed if you come to Christ. Trust in him. He'll make the ringing of your conscience stop. It's amazing. He'll quiet it. He'll be gone. Some people say, oh, Christianity, it's all about guilt. And I just say, if you're guilty all the time, you're doing it wrong. Okay? Because Christianity, the gospel, is about the removal of guilt. Right? People are already guilty. It's not like, oh, yeah, Christianity, that's making people guilty. No, they're already guilty. I mean, look at society. Everybody out there is dealing with a burden of guilt. And it leads to all sorts of destruction in people's lives, Right? All sorts of, you know, burdens. And what Jesus says is he comes and he goes, I'll take that away. I'll take away your guilt. I'll remove it. Jesus' blood can cleanse your conscience no matter what you've done. There aren't, like, stains he can't remove. Isn't that amazing? He can remove it all. He's gone into the true holy of holies. And intentional sins are wonderfully included. You know, there's no terms of service with Jesus. like, oh, but not the intentional ones. The intentional ones, he's, he's paid for those too. And so he can cleanse your conscience. And I just say there's no reason for you to continue to you know, go out there and live your life and try to be distracted by that. Come to Christ. Just simply ask him. You know, ask him to remove your sin. You know, I heard about how you've removed sin. Take my sin from me. Forgive me. Make me new. And he'll do it. 
I mean, you could do it. You don't need to wait to do it. You don't need to, like, think about it. What is there to think about, by the way? It's like, oh, I'll think about it. Like, okay, so the offer is to have all your sins forgiven by the blood of Jesus instantaneously, to have your conscience cleansed, and to be looking forward to ever-increasing joy in his presence forever. You're like, how much does it cost? It's a gift. I'll think about it. There's no reason to think about it. Come to him. You know, even as we worship at the end, even as we take the Lord's Supper, that could be your first act of saying, I'm taking Jesus. I'm taking his offer for me. And um, the interesting thing, guys, is it's at the temple. When we think about the temple, we think about it was this diorama. It was this model of miniature. It was pointing forward to Christ. It was showing us what uh, needed to happen for us. And, and the amazing thing is that's why it's gone, guys. And even during the time of Jesus, the temple was already kind of on its way out, right? It was kind of on its way out. It was kind of on its way out because you guys realize by the time of Jesus, there wasn't an ark in the Holy of Holies. When he's talking about here and he talks about tabernacle, he's talking about the past, deep past. Hundreds of years before, probably 600 years before, the ark disappeared. We all know where it went because we watched the movies. But there was no ark. Right? When Pompey came in 63 AD and he went into the Holy of Holies, he went in the most holy place, he was shocked there was nothing in there. You guys realize for centuries, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest went in with the sacrificial blood and apparently threw it into an empty room. Isn't that wild? The emptiness of that place is the emptiness of the Mosaic Covenant. It was time for it to pass away. And God made this even more clear that when Jesus died, the, the veil was torn, right, from top to bottom. And then within a generation, just as Jesus said, the temple was destroyed by the Romans and was never rebuilt. Guys, this tells us something. Remember verse 8? It says, the way into the holy place is not yet open as long as the first section stands. It's not standing anymore, right? So now we know the way is open. Way is open to Jesus because it's not standing anymore. There is no curtain there anymore. Jesus has made it extremely clear. I can put it another way. There's nowhere for you to legitimately offer a sacrifice of your own, right? There's no temple to do it in. Jesus has paid it all. The way is open. What's next? I'm just going to tell you real briefly because we talked about heaven, and I just want to mention one other thing. As wonderful as heaven is right now, we're actually awaiting something even better. And that something better is in Revelation 21 and 22, you can read this while you're waiting out the hurricane. But in Revelation 21, it describes that heaven, the tabernacle, God's home, is going to descend to this world and make all things new. Heaven and earth are going to become one place. God's dwelling place is going to be with man. Revelation 21.3 says this, The dwelling place of God, his tabernacle, is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and he himself will be their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain, for the former things will pass away. And as you read Revelation 21, you find that there's this new Jerusalem, this city, and there's no temple there. Why? Because the whole place, the whole physical creation is now God's tabernacle. It's what we prayed for this morning. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as is in heaven. This can be answered. Isn't that amazing? All because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just the amazing artistry, the amazing foreshadowing, the amazing way that you have crafted the whole Old Covenant to point to your son Jesus. And 
I just thank you that we have so much more depth of understanding of what your son Jesus did for us and what you did for us in him because of it. And so we just come before you just in awe of the way you have crafted all this and then of your great love for us that you would give your own son to die for our sins is incredible. Incredible is not a big enough word for it. And that you would even this morning in the preaching of your word that you would speak to us and you'd make it so clear. Another act of grace. Thank you for your spirit. We thank you, Holy Spirit, how you open our eyes to believe and love this truth. And we just pray, Lord, that as we see these things, that they would more and more mold our hearts after Christ, that we would live more and more faithfully to you. Father, we pray as we take the Lord's Supper that you would feed us in that, even as you fed us in your word. We thank you, Lord, for an opportunity to worship you. We pray that our worship would be something that you yourself would enjoy that you would love hearing from your kids as we sing and worship and enjoy you. We look forward to the time we're going to see you. We're going to see you with our own eyes in our resurrected bodies in a resurrected world, standing before you, the God we've loved all this time and seeing for the first time. So we pray, Lord, with all the difficulties we have until that day, we pray that you'd hold us with that, with that beautiful future we have. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.